2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll read from verse 17 to 19. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new, and all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer uh, before the sermon. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for your goodness. We thank you for this time and for your word. And we pray that you would now give us your wisdom and understanding. So Lord, as the Spirit of God moves in our hearts now, I pray that we would be open to his teaching. I pray that we would take in the truths, Father, that you teach us. And I pray that we would live by them and grow stronger through them. We pray that our lives would indeed grow stronger each and every day of our lives, that we might become more and more like our Saviour as we grow closer to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ever, uh, ever spoken to people who aren't Christian, but they get themselves in a bit of a tizzy when you talk about the Trinity? And you'll say, you know, we believe in the Trinity. And they'll say, oh, where does it say the Trinity in the Bible? And there isn't anywhere in the Bible that says the Trinity. Doesn't say that word anywhere in the Bible. And they get all, all worked up because they say, well, how can, how can that be? That's impossible to understand by definition. And so they say, because they can't understand it, because they can't fully comprehend it and wrap their minds around it, that it can't possibly be true. Well, you know something, in, intellectually, it's probably very difficult to, to grasp all the nuances of the Trinity. But it, not grasping something doesn't stop us as people from utilising and, and using and, and doing whatever we have to do in our regular lives and trusting other people uh, for it. For example, um, how many of us understand how electricity gets into our homes? And I'm not talking about just going through the wires. I'm talking about what is it? What is electricity? So how many people in society actually understand what electricity is? In fact, there are many scientists who don't understand what electricity is. They'll give you a, a very glib, um, they can give you a very glib sort of um, definition. For example, it's the flow of electrons, right? The flow of electrons. But how does the flow of electrons actually deliver power? It's not an easy thing to understand. Um, having been or having done the course, still don't understand it. <laughs> so um, it's not an easy thing. But it doesn't stop us from believing that you can generate electricity at a power plant tens and hundreds of kilometres away, that that power can be actually transported along wires, that it can be actually changed all along the way at different substations to different voltages, and then that can actually be delivered to my home and I turn my kettle on and it boils my water. Oh, wonderful, isn't it? But how many people understand it? Not many. The same goes with a car. How many people understand how the internal combustion engine works? Not very many. But yet it doesn't stop us from filling it up with petrol and putting the foot down and breaking the law most of the time when we speed on the freeway. So there are plenty of things that, that we do in our lives that we don't necessarily understand, but we just accept. So why do people believe that the God who created all of these things who lives in eternity, who is infinite in all of his characteristics, is somehow easier to understand than those. He doesn't have to be easy to understand. He just, we just have to accept what he tells us about himself. It doesn't have to be more complicated than that. So, the Trinity is a concept that is taught throughout the Bible. It's clearly taught, and it comes from five important truths Okay, five very important truths. And when we put these truths together, it gives the Trinity. Yes, there's five, not three. Sorry, I'm going to make it more complicated for you. The first is, the Bible says that the Father is God. Okay, so many times it's mentioned in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, God the Father. Okay, so it, it's clear in the New Testament and the Old Testament that God is a Father. 
The second thing that it tells us is that the Son is God as well. So not only is the Father God, but actually says the Son is God. And it does that, and we maybe have uh, shared this with you already, but the fact that Jesus commands the elements, he has authority over angels and demons and, and the weather and everything else, and he, the Bible says he actually holds everything by the word of his own power. The Bible says that everything was created by him and for him. tells you that he can only be one person. So the Son is God. So the Father's God, the Son is God. And then it says that the Holy Spirit is God as well. Now you might say, well, okay, well, maybe they're just the, the, the different ways of looking at the same thing. The problem is, is, is the fourth element in this thing. It says that these three individuals interact with each other. They interact. In other words, they speak to each other. They instruct each other. They work together. In other words, when Jesus said to his disciples, it's better that I go and leave you. Because unless I go and be back with the Father, he says, I can't send you the Comforter. I can't send you the Holy Spirit. So in other words, when Jesus went up, to heaven, and he ascended to the Father, it was only at that point that he said, now I can send you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit came down upon the apostles, and they were able to speak in tongues, and they were energized to do some amazing things. The Bible says that God the Father sent the Son into the world to save the world. When Jesus was in the world, he says he prayed to the Father. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit is grieved. He's grieved. When we sin, the Bible says, don't quench him. Don't, don't try and, 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 and snuff him out. So there are interactions that happen between these three individuals. So they must be persons. Because, as some people contend, the Holy Spirit is just a force. You know, like in Star Wars, may the force be with you. The force has no personality. It has no brain. It has no reasoning. It hasn't. Um, the difference is, in the Bible... The Bible tells us the Holy Spirit is the one who determines who gets which gifts. Did you like that? So the Bible says that he, that he deals out, okay, severally as he wills the gifts that we receive as Christians, which we are then called to use as Christians and to bless other people as well. So we have four truths so far. We have the Father is God. The Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And these three are individuals who are able to interact with each other, which leads me to the last one. The Bible says there is one God. Now, what do you do with that? Well, you do what the early, earliest Christians did. They came up with a word to describe it. And that word was Trinity. And the word Trinity is simply made up of two words, and it's made up of simply the word for three, try, and the word unity, together. Okay? So the Trinity simply means these three are one. Okay? And that goes with what the Bible teaches us from the beginning to the end. So the Bible tells us there is one God. So... The New Testament, when it came out, Jesus revealed a whole lot more than was revealed in the Old Testament. The Old Testament gave us glimpses of a lot of different things, but when Jesus came along, he really expanded on a lot of these things and it made it very clear what God was talking about in the Old Testament. So if you ever have struggles reading the Old Testament, make sure you always read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. So I'm going to say your New Testament first before you read the Old Testament because New Testament is a full picture of the Old Testament. And sometimes if you don't have all that information, you may go back and look at it in, a, in the wrong possible way. So, but the, New, the Trinity is alluded to a number of times in the Old Testament as well. And in each of these instances where we see the Trinity at work, it says they perform different functions. They do different things. The Father does something differently to the Son, and the Son does something differently to the Holy Spirit, but each of them work perfectly together. In fact, the Trinity is, is so clear, in the, in the, even in the Old Testament, 
that the most important prayer to the Jews unto this day, which has been repeated millions and millions of times by then for the last, I don't know how many thousands of years, and it's called the Shema. And it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And it starts with this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. That's their most important prayer that they pray. Hear, O, hear, o Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Now you might say, well, see, you go. It's only saying it's about one Lord. But you know that word for one wasn't the word just for one, as in one phone. The word for one in the Bible means a group together. That word that God chose to describe himself as the Lord our God is one is actually a composite word. So even in their own prayers, they repeat over and over, there is the hint that God is multiples in one. So we see that this trinity that we believe in, evident in a number of different ways. For example, I'll give you an example. When we pray, okay? when, the, when, the, when Jesus was on the earth and disciples went to him and said, teach us to pray. So Jesus says, okay. And he gave them the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He gave them a way and he said, pray in this manner. He said, don't pray this, but pray like this. And I'll give you the example of how you should pray. So Jesus taught the way to pray and pointed them to the Father. The Father is the one who hears the prayer. The Bible also then says, that for a believer, the Holy Spirit dwells inside him, and it's the Holy Spirit that actually gives them the words to say. In fact, the Bible goes so far as to say that if you don't know the words, that if you don't know what to pray, the Bible says he prays on your behalf with groans that we can't even understand or even comprehend. So the Holy Spirit is inside us praying, and he's the one who prompts us he gives us, he brings to our mind the things that we need to be praying for. He's the one who energizes us for that particular work. So we have God the Father hearing the prayer, Jesus showing us the way to pray, and the Bible says to pray in his name. And then we have the Holy Spirit who actually is the one who works through us to deliver the prayer. Isn't that beautiful how God the Trinity actually works within us each day to pray? We also see the Trinity involved in the resurrection of Jesus. I asked this question uh, probably a, a few weeks ago now. Who raised Jesus from the grave? Who raised him from the grave? The Bible says that it was the Spirit, the Holy Spirit that raised him from the grave. If you answered that, you'd be correct. The Bible says that the Father raised him from the grave. If you answered that one, you'd be correct too. And the Bible also says that Jesus raised himself from the grave. Look at that. The Trinity was involved in the resurrection. The whole of the Trinity. When Jesus was baptised, and he came to John the Baptist, and John the Baptist said, Oh, I shouldn't be baptising you. You should be baptising me. And Jesus says, let it be done now. Let it, let's fulfil every righteousness. So when John the Baptist baptised him, and Jesus came up out of the water... We see three things going on. Jesus, the Son of God, being baptised. We see a voice coming out of heaven which says, Behold my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, which is the Father speaking. And then we see the Holy Spirit come down like a dove that rests upon him. We see the Trinity actually present all at the same time at the baptism of Jesus. The, the Trinity was also present in the creation of the world. So the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know how he created them? The Bible says he created them through Jesus. He spake the universe into existence. And you know who Jesus is? The word of God. And the Bible also tells us in those first few verses that the spirit of God hovered above the waters. He was present as well. So the Trinity is present in the creation of the universe. This is why when we baptise a person, the scripture tells us to baptise them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. You'll notice something interesting with that. How many names 
one in the name. There is one name, and he's the great I am. He's, he's Yahweh, Jehovah. He calls himself a number of different, but he's one name with those three individuals. So the general rule that the Trinity is evident in creation, our salvation, the life of Christ, the Bible itself and the way it came together, the beginning of the church at Pentecost, in baptism, and prayer, at the end of the world, and many, many other places, the Trinity reveals itself over and over and over again. And there seems to be a pattern that God has shown us here. In, and it's particularly this. God the Father seems to be the source or the initiator of things. So he'll start the thing rolling. He'll initiate. He'll become the source of the actual thing or the, the idea. The Son then goes, interacts with creation. He's the one who goes and interacts with it and actually becomes the way. Okay? And then you have the Holy Spirit, which generally becomes the, the source of power or the energy that's needed to actually carry that whole thing through. I'll give you an example of this. Uh, turn to Romans chapter 3, verse 10. We're going to look at salvation as an example okay, of this. So remember, I've told you, the Father is the source or the initiator. The Son is the interactor and the way. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. The Father is the source or the initiator. The Son is the interactor and the way. And the Spirit is the power and the energizer. Now, let's look at our salvation. Let's look at what, let's contrast these two things. Let's look at, look at ourselves and let's look at God. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says, As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that, what does it say in your Bibles? Seeketh after God. Okay? We, as sinners and lost beings, had no intent of being reconciled back to God. The intent didn't come from us. The desire didn't, wasn't born with us. We had never the intent or desire to be reunited back with God. Okay, is that clear enough? So no one seeks after God, which means there was no intention on our part to do it. The intent wasn't there. Now go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, it says, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. You know something? One of the most prevalent miracles that Jesus did during his life was bringing sight to blind people. Jesus didn't heal blind people to show you that he could heal blind people but to show you that we had a deeper problem, and that is that we were all spiritually blind and that he was the way to open up our eyes. <clears throat> Everyone is spiritually blind. The Bible says that we are depraved in our nature. We can't see. And Jesus actually says to Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God, let alone enter into it. You can't even see it. Okay? So we didn't have the way to get back to God. We couldn't see it. We were all totally blind. And the devil has done a fantastic job of blinding the people of this world from seeing the truth. Okay? So we had, one, no intent. Two, we were blind. We, we didn't know the way and couldn't make a way back to God. So go to Romans chapter 5, verse 6 with me now. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 says very simply, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. We had no strength or power to get back to God. Even if we had the intent, even if we saw the way, we didn't have the ability. We didn't have the power or the energy to get ourselves back on the right track 
and get ourselves home. So the Bible clearly says that we had no intent. We were blind and we were weak to be able to do anything. And the Bible says very clearly, when we were without strength. When we had nothing, no strength within ourselves, God sent his son to die for us. Now, okay, so we had no intent. We were blind to our state. We weren't even aware of where we were at, okay, with our sin. And then we were powerless to save ourselves. Now, let me contrast that with God, right? Turn to John, first, sorry, 1 John chapter 4, verse 14. First John chapter 4, verse 14. I've gone to that one because the obvious one I could have given you is, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. Amen. So he's, I could have given you that one because it's the most easiest one. God had the intent. God had the desire to fix this relationship back up. But First John chapter 4, verse 14 also says, And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Saviour of the world. It was the Father's intent. He had the intent to send His Son. He was the initiator. Okay? Now go to John chapter 14, verse 6. So the Father had the intent and was the initiator. Where we had no intent and weren't ready to initiate anything. In John chapter 14, verse 6, it tells us, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You see, Jesus became the way for us. When we couldn't see the path and the way, Jesus says, hold on, I'm the way. Okay. And the other beautiful thing, is that the Bible says that he was the light of the world. So even though we were living in a world filled with darkness, he gave us the light to see the path and get on it as well. So he opened up our eyes and he showed us the path and he said, I'm the path. You just follow me and I'll lead you all the way home. So not only did God the Father have the intent, the Son then became the way. And finally we see... In Romans chapter 15, verse 13. That the Holy Spirit provided the power. The Holy Spirit provided the energy that we needed to make it all the way home. Romans chapter 15, verse 13 says, Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, it says, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. The Holy Ghost provides the energy and the power to get the job done. Okay, So God the Father had the intent. He started the ball rolling. The Son came into the world to save us. He became our way. And the Holy Spirit, once Jesus went back to the Father, gives us the energy. He becomes the, the source of energy which connected with our spirit. To bring us back to life again. So mankind found himself powerless to save himself, blind to his state, and unwilling to do anything. But God, in his perfect trinity, had it all. He had it absolutely all. He had the intent, the way, and the, the power that we needed. And this is true for every person, not just the world in general. Every person is like this and needs this God who is a trinity, to save us. Thus the trinity functions in perfect unison, in perfect harmony. It functions with perfect purpose, perfect knowledge, perfect character, and in a perfect relationship. And this is what I want to start heading into now. The important point I want you to understand is not just that the basics of who the trinity is, I want you to understand that God defines himself as a relational being. A relational being. In other words, what do I mean by that? It means that he is both, both personal, okay, which means he recognises himself. He is able to reason. He is able to uh, logically conclude. He has purpose. okay, And he's also social. In other words, he defines himself as a social being. 
one who can interact with other beings. Okay? Now, it's easy to see how God can be a relational being when you see him interacting with man, when you see him interacting with angels and those sorts of things. But let me ask you a question. What about before he created anything? What about before he created anything? You see, there's a, there's a phrase that Christians love to use a lot and they, 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 they throw it around very, very easily. And, and, and it's that phrase that we find in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. God is love. All right? is, that, is that statement true? True. Completely true. God is love. He defines himself as love. But let me ask you a question. And, and C.S. Lewis brought up this interesting point. He said um, in, Me, Christ, in his book, Me, Christianity, what people often miss in this simple statement that God is love is that love is meaningless unless there's someone else to bestow your love upon. If you were the only individual in the universe, how could you say to be loving? Can you actually be loving when there's only one? So let me ask you a question. Did God become love only when he created the universe or was God love before he created the universe in all of eternity? I'll submit to you that God is love is who he is yesterday, today, and forever, going all the way back before anything was ever made and going, away, going all the way forward into eternity. Okay? Now, what that means is that love is meaningless without another person to bestow your love upon. So you can't be said to be loving unless you've got someone else to show that love to. But there was a trinity. There were three going back all of eternity. And the Father could show love to the Son. And the Son could show love to the Father. And the Holy Spirit was there to witness the whole thing. And the Father could show love to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit to the, to the, uh, to the Father and the Son would perfectly interact with each other. Before anything ever came into existence, God was already in a perfect loving relationship within himself. He didn't need anyone else. You know something? He didn't need to create the universe. He didn't need to create men and, and women and angels and animals and all the planets and galaxies that you see to make himself feel special. You know something? God was already in a perfectly loving relationship within himself. He didn't need any more love. He didn't need it. And, and, and I'm sorry if I've, I've burst your bubble this morning. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He is perfectly fulfilled within himself. He is perfect. When he created us, he was the one who ran the risk that we'd mess things up. And he knew it already that we were going to mess things up. So when he created, when he chose to create the universe and men and angels and all these other things that we read about in the Bible and we see in this universe, his love could overflow onto the rest of his creation. The love that he had was already complete, but that could overflow to the rest of creation and he extended himself to the rest of creation that he might have a relationship with it. So the Bible says that God created us in his own image. And when he did that, he created us with the express purpose of having a personal relationship with him. He created us relational beings. Turn to Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 with me, please. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. And we'll find something very interesting here. God created... Or God was a trinity, which means three individuals who are in perfect unison and harmony as one God. Now, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 says this, And God said, how many gods do you see there? One God. Let us make man in our image. Oh, that's an obvious error in the actual thing, isn't it, text? Us. Was one God. Why is it saying us for? 
And why is it saying hour? Surely that can't be right. That doesn't make sense. It's a chapter 1 of Genesis. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. One again. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Wow, look at that. What a, what a couple of verses there. The truth of the matter is that God did create us in his image. And if you look at chapter 2 verse 7, Okay, and it says, and it says there, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. What did he breathe into us? He breathed the Spirit of God into us. He breathed the Spirit into us. And we became a living soul. So our bodies were created with, from the dust. God fashioned us. Like a, a statue sort of thing, okay? He moulded us into the image that he wanted us to be. The Bible says that he then breathed into us. And we became living souls. We became a body, a soul, and a spirit. We became what's called tripartite beings. There are three parts to us. And as a side note, if the Father... The Son and the Holy Spirit demonstrate the intent, the way, and the power. Then our soul is the one that demonstrates our intent. The body is the one that interacts and becomes the way. And the spirit within us was meant to be the energizing, the spiritual energizing within us. Because it was connected with his spirit. But when man fell, that connection got cut. And then what happened... What happened was our spirits died. We no longer had the spiritual energy to continue and man died spiritually and he died physically as well. So, when a, the Bible says when a man is born again or when a woman is born again, it says that the Holy Spirit then reconnects, a bit like a, uh, uh, an extension cord, reconnects that power again and all of a sudden our spirits come alive. Okay, And we are back from the dead. All right, so 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The scriptures say in the New Testament, we are made of three parts. And we are made of three parts because God made us in his image and he made us that way so we would interact with him. Okay, so if God is able to have a meaning, thus God made it, us to have a meaningful relationship with him. Okay? Now, but there's something which is a problem here. If there's anything we learn by simply looking at the lives of, of people in this world and our own lives, is that there are plenty of what we call broken relationships. Broken. We, there are plenty of strained relationships. There are plenty of false relationships. And there are plenty of people who are living around each other with no relationship. Okay? This is what we see endemic in this world. Um, in fact, man has had this problem from the beginning, this relationship problem with each other. Okay? And it's all over the place. If you're married to someone else, you know what I'm talking about. Okay? If, you, if you're committed to anyone, you understand what I'm talking about. We often get into very difficult situations within ourselves because our own, our own lives are tainted with sin. In fact, it was so bad that at the beginning, the first two people that were born on this planet, the first two people were two brothers, Cain and Abel, and one killed the other one. It wasn't a good start for interpersonal relationships. It started there. And in fact, within a thousand years, the first thousand years, the relationship between man became so bad that the Bible says that the earth was filled with violence and there was only one family left, essentially, that wasn't ruined like that. And God had to destroy a whole planet because, because people were killing each other left, right and centre. So if you, look at, if you look at that as a bit of a rescue mission that God did, he saved Noah and his family, okay? The guy preached for over 100 years and still no one came. That's how bad things were. 
But the, the sad thing about it is, is that even after they came off, the, as soon as they stepped off the ark, do you think things were fixed? No. They started within a short amount of time doing the same thing that they were doing before. So we've had a very bad history of bad relationships bad relationships our, our history and our experience tells us that we struggle to sustain proper loving relationships with each other and it points to one glaring truth that the broken relationship that we have with God was our fault it wasn't God's it was, it was our fault when, men, when man fell in the garden what happened was a disruption in the perfect relationship which God initiated and blessed in fact, he was so desirous to have a relationship with us that by chapter 3, before chapter 3, the Bible says that he planted a, a perfect garden for us to stay in. He actually um, created a helpmeet for Adam. It says that he brought all the animals to Adam to have him name them for himself. It says that he gave them instruction as to what they were meant to do in that garden. It says also that the Son of God, the pre-incarnate Son of God, was also already walking in the garden with them. Okay, and interacting with them. But on one particular day, man took that relationship and betrayed it. He literally forsook it in order to gain some knowledge and experience that he didn't have before. Okay? And he threw away the experiential knowledge that he had of God to experience something outside of him, something that he wasn't meant to have. So the Bible says that we broke the relationship and we broke the law. So we not only ruined the relationship, we actually broke the law as well. So I'll just read from you Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. And it says, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Abraham and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. You know, someone who's not guilty doesn't hide themselves. Someone who is guilty and feels, and feels like they've done something wrong is the person to hide themselves. A man's done that ever since. We are guilty because we betrayed a loving friend. We betrayed him. Not only did we betray and we ruined the relationship, but we were guilty of trespassing the law of God. In all rights, God could have killed Adam and Eve. Then and there, and started the whole process again. But instead, he showed himself to be a loving friend that he is. He clothed them. He sent them out of the garden. He gave them a promise that he would fix this thing and send someone to actually fix this thing once and for all and make a way to fix the penalty of their crime, but also to restore the relationship. So this brings me to our, back to our text, which says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that means that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. There are two things which God essentially did when he chose to save mankind. One was to save us from the penalty of our crimes. He saved us from the penalty of our crimes. He paid the fine, okay? Which meant that we, did, we stand no longer condemned to hell, okay? He saved us and rescued us from our own sin and our own selves. The price that Jesus paid at Calvary was sufficient payment for the crimes that were committed against God. And to verify the payment, ever see, ever tapped your, you know, you can tap your cards now. Ever seen that, the pay pass thing? So you tap your card and you just wait for it and then you wait a little bit and if you've got any money in your account, it'll say approved, right? God sent his approval of the payment at Calvary. You know how he did it? When Jesus rose again from the grave on the third day. That was the approved. Payment's gone through. It's clear. It's all done. So God... God allows his son and, and rescues his son and takes him out of, out of, out of uh, thing. Jesus defeats death itself. And the payment was complete. And we, as people now, can have hope that we will spend the rest of eternity alive, not dead. 
Because God has given us eternal life because Jesus became the first person. He became the first fruits or the first example of what's going to happen to everyone who is in him. So it's a bit like that ark. God saved a family. Anyone who is in that ark, anyone who is in Jesus, is floating above the the destruction when it comes. But the other thing that Jesus did, the second part of it, was he restored the relationship that we ruined, that man once had with God, that perfect relationship that existed in the garden until man betrayed that trust. God restored through Jesus Christ. And how did he do that? Well, he not only satisfied God in every possible way, it says that he lived the perfect life as well, that we couldn't live. Someone gave an interesting example that I saw recently. It was a bit like this. Imagine you've been invited to your family's Christmas do. All right? So you've been invited to your mum's place, and you've got your brothers and sisters there as well, and you're married with your own family, so you come along. Anyway, and mum has worked and slaved for a whole week to prepare this meal. So there's all this food on this long table and there's turkey and there's hams and there's all types of food. And you look at it and you say, wow, that looks unbelievable. And you know what, they, what, what they've spent and what they've done to actually get it that way, right? But you've learned a new magic trick, okay? You've learned a new magic trick. And you want, you want to impress everyone, right? So you've learned this magic trick that when you pull the, the tablecloth from off the table... You've seen it before, haven't you? The plates stay exactly where they are, right? So you go to your family, I'm going to show you a new magic trick before we start eating. And they go, what are you talking about? This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to pull the tablecloth, and because I've practiced this and I know it really well, everything's going to stay exactly where it is. And your family starts screaming, and you say, no, don't do it. Don't do it. And your dad's screaming at you, your mum's bellowing at you. And you say, no, 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 I've got to show you, I've got to show you. And you rip this, um, this tablecloth away and all the plates and all the food go flying all over the place and you look at it and you've got your whole family looking at it you just wanted to kill you. Mm. After they've told you don't do it, you simply go ahead and do it. Now, you've ruined the relationship, haven't you? So, there's a few ways you can make up for it. But the obvious way to make up for it would be what? Bring some more food. Replace the meal, okay? So people can actually eat and enjoy their Christmas, their Christmas lunch. But you've got a problem. You can't cook. You can't cook. So what do I do now? The Bible says that we're in the same boat. We ruined the Christmas dinner. We ruined it. And God said, what have you done? I told you not to do it. And we betrayed his trust. And we couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't fix it by providing with a meal. So Jesus comes along who is the perfect cook. Yeah? He'll smash anyone in, uh, in, in uh, one of those cooking shows, right? And he comes along and prepares the perfect meal. And he says, here it is. And you know what the meal was? Himself. Did we deserve it? No. Did he do it for us? Yes. So what do we have to do to accept it or receive it? Say thank you. Because he came to restore the relationship. He came and said, all right, everyone, that's okay. I've fixed it up. Here it is. It's all fixed up now. The Bible says that Jesus cooked that perfect meal to replace the original one. And the Bible says that he became the propitiation for our sins. He satisfied God's anger toward us. It appeased God. And you know what's beautiful? He credited, us, he credited it to our account as well. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is the only way to reconcile and renew the relationship that we ruined. This is why the scripture says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. There's a new relationship I've made for you now. I've got for you. When we repent of our sin and believe in Christ, we become new creatures. 
We now have a new relationship with the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, each one playing a role in our salvation and a role in our ongoing growth. And verse 18 tells us, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ. There's your trinity. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. God was in Christ. Colossians chapter 1. If you can turn with me there, we're, we're about to wrap this up. Thank you for your patience. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. I think I might have mentioned the Colossians is one of my favourite, favourite, favourite letters. It talks about the only begotten Son of God. And in verse 15, it says this about Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For so it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace, this is what reconciliation is all about, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. You like that? Amen. See what he did? He did Amen. an amazing thing for us. Do you see the wonderful work of the Trinity? To reconcile us back to a loving relationship with himself. There is no greater relationship that we can have. No greater prize that we can win. No greater gift than you can ever receive than to have that relationship restored with God once again. The Apostle John tells us that we have, we have seen and heard declare we unto you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We have fellowship with God. And that now means that we can have proper relationships and fellowship with each other. Because unless the, the major relationship is fixed, the rest of them can never be fixed. So if your relationship is, is good with God, if it's right, it's been restored, then you have every hope of having proper relationships with everyone else around you. But he wants us to continue this work. And if you look at verse 18 and 19, he says two very important things. That when your relationship has been restored with God, when you've been reconciled yourself, and you know that in your heart, that you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you are a new creature, the Bible says that he's given to you the ministry of reconciliation, and committed unto you and me the word of reconciliation. What does that mean? It means that we've got a job to do, brothers and sisters. If you've been reconciled and you've got a job to do, and it's a ministry, and it comes through the word of God. Just as God the Father was the initiator. Did you remember that? The God the Father was the initiator. He sent his son into the world, and then he energized those who put their faith in him. The Bible says that he initiates now, and he uses us to go out into the world. To share the same gospel and the same truth. The Bible says we are Jesus' body. We are his hands. We are his feet. We are the physical Christ on this earth. He lives in us and works through us. He hasn't stopped. And he wants us to share that message which you have heard this morning. That God wants to be reconciled with people. He wants to have a loving relationship with them. He loves them so much and he gave them everything. We have a responsibility to share that truth with people around us. We need to love them as he loves them. 
My, my question to you this morning is, have you been reconciled to God? If you haven't been reconciled to God, if you don't know what that means, if you haven't been made a new creature in Christ, and now is the day, don't waste another moment. Why are, you, why are you not entering into a relationship that is the most important thing you can ever, ever have? And my other question to you is if you have been reconciled, then are you fulfilling your obligation? Are you sharing that word with others? Because there is no greater truth to share than the fact that God wants to be reconciled with mankind and he's done everything he possibly can to do that. All they need to do is say, okay, I'll accept. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the wonderful work that was done at Calvary by you. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for sending your Son into this world, this sin-darkened world. And he lived the perfect life and he died the perfect death that we might have that life, that we might be restored back to you. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for reconciling us back to yourself. Father, I pray if there is anyone here who does not know you, who does not have this relationship that I speak of, then I pray even now that your spirit would convict their heart, that they would see their need, and they would desire the relationship that you offer. Father, I pray if there are any here who have a broken relationship with you, Father, I pray that they would turn from their sin they would forsake their sin, they would repent and they would understand that you were always there. Father, help us to be mindful of the job that you've called us to do. We thank you for this church, we thank you for this day, we thank you for the word of God which is pure in every possible way and we pray that we will grow through it stronger and stronger each day into the image of our blessed Saviour. In his name I pray. Amen.